It's time. Time for stimulating talk. Time for thought-provoking conversation. Time for the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. Turn on your brain and get the real scoop on today's topics and events. Here is Lisa Wexler. Hello, 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 and good morning. Let's see if I can hear myself better in my own headphones here. Oh, yeah, I think that's doing it. That's better. Good morning, hello, and welcome. It's a brisk and beautiful wintry blue sky kind of a day on a Tuesday. It's December 13th, which means it's lucky because 13 is my lucky number. 203-333-9422. Hello and good morning. We have really moving and fabulously interesting and informative guests on today. Leo Smith is joining us. Now, he is head of the Connecticut chapter of the International Dark Sky Association. And you know that my real obsession with birds has now transformed, and I'm looking at a beautiful chickadee right now, has transformed into an obsession with recreating our night skies so that we can help stop the enormous disappearance of so many of our beautiful birds in the skies. Estimated a billion have disappeared since the 1970s, and there are multiple causes. But believe it or not, estimated to be as many as one-third of those birds have disappeared and are continuing to disappear because we have screwed up their navigation system by lighting our night skies as human beings. And we are confusing them, and we have taken them off course, and they are flying blind and often into the wrong place and disappearing. This is something that for so many reasons, I mean, that's my true humanitarian reason, but for so many reasons when we think about conservation of resources and the waste, the unbelievable waste that we have gotten used to, most of our night skies don't need to be lit nearly as much as they are being lit. The neon signs that have proliferated throughout our own community really don't need to be there. We can see what the sign says during the daytime when the store is open. And in the nighttime, it can be backlit and turned off at an appropriate time when the store is closed. If you want to have a motion detector in your parking lot for grounds of general safety, God bless. I'm all for it. Anybody pulls up in a car or walks by and that light goes on while that person or car is there, no problem. Good idea. Sensible 21st century solution. But is there any reason why when we go on our highways and byways, we have to see the inside of these massive commercial buildings lit from within? You tell me. What's it about? It's crazy. And I'm very interested to talk with Leo Smith because there is a movement, and it's gaining traction, not only with one ordinance at a time in a patchwork patchwork way, but on a national scale. Because for so many good reasons, we need to reclaim our night skies. So Leo Smith is coming on at 10.30 today to talk about it. Martha Zoller is coming on from WDUN in South Georgia, conservative talk radio host, dear friend. And we're going to talk about Kristen Cinema, which is a conversation we haven't even had a chance to have yet. And this is a conversation 
about Kristen Sinema defecting from the Democratic Party to become an independent, which she says has always been her own voting record, her own predilection, and she feels best represents the people of the state of Arizona. She's not the first person to do this ever, but she's the first person in a long time. And let's find out from Martha Zala, what does that mean? We'll go into the intricacies. Martha's a pretty astute political analyst. We'll chat with her in the next hour. Also coming up at 1130, very special guest, Jennifer Hubbard. Jennifer Hubbard is the mom of Violet. And Violet Hubbard, Catherine Violet, right? Catherine Violet? Catherine Violet um, was one of the children that were killed 10 years ago tomorrow uh, in Sandy Hook. And in that time, Ms. Hubbard has gathered a lot of money, a lot of resources, a tremendous amount of energy to create an animal sanctuary right in Newtown, right within our walking, driving distance here on WICC. And I've been there, and it's a beautiful place, and I will go back there. And we'll chat with Jennifer Hubbard about her reflections of the last 10 years and about her daughter, and about her passion and activism since then. And we owe members of our community, at the very least, this. We owe them the airwaves. We owe them the opportunity to speak and a chance to listen. We owe them that. And I'm excited to speak with Jennifer at 1130. 203-333-9422. And by the way, tomorrow, we have sort of a special way we're opening our show tomorrow. We've got two of our stars of our brother station, we be 108. We be 108. Uh, are coming into the studio to open the show with us tomorrow. Danny Lyons and Storm and Norman will be joining us as we open tomorrow's show. Don't miss it. It's a rare opportunity to hear your favorite broadcasters at once where they're talking. They're not just spinning the records. And they're talking, going to be talking about, we all are, how it felt to broadcast 10 years ago when the Sandy Hook calamity first unfolded. And we were all first-person accounts. We were all broadcasting. 203-333-9422. John in Fairfield. John, you want to start us off with a conversation about birds? I love it. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. Thank you. You too. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with you with birds. Uh, years ago, working in New York City, um, I managed to get a woodcock to the Audubon Society it, um, I asked them why it was injured on the sidewalk. And, you know, this is a bird that doesn't normally spend time, you know, in the high rises of the city. And they said, well, if there's a low cloud cover and they're flying low, they may very well fly right into buildings. Oh, my. And, and this does happen. So this, the, the good news is that they took the woodcock, they rehabilitated it, and um, it was on its way. But the question I have for you is, and, and I'm sure you agree with me, Mother Nature is incredible in its ability to adapt. Sure. So when you mention that these birds are gone, are mm -hmm. we saying that they're gone from our ability to track them and they've taken other routes to navigate to where they go when they migrate? Or are we saying that we know that they're just gone? They're gone. So there's been a very huge study, and I can, I, I'll cite it for you. I'll find it and cite it for you, that has done a bird count all over the world. And the bird count, but specifically in North America, um, we believe about a billion birds have disappeared. 
they, they, they're, they're not anymore in the population. And, and when you think about it, that, is, that also doesn't take into account that generally speaking, populations grow over time. So you would expect a certain amount of growth if the population was stable, right? Like human beings, we grow. But in fact, they shrunk. And they think there were three causes. One of them is um, pollution, you know, sort of like, you know, what we've done to our planet. We've, we've sort of polluted it. But another one is night skies, and that's a very, very big one. Uh, and then a third one is, well, pollution and habitat removal. You know, some of the birds are, they don't, they can't go where they used to go, and it's, and it's thrown them off course. There may be also be some disease in there. There may be some natural kind of extinction among species, but it wouldn't explain this mass disappearance of birds. It's just enormous. And another one, of course, is insecticides and pesticides because the birds eat the vermin and the vermin have poison and the birds die. We've seen this with owls, with our raptors. I'm sure you've been reading, John, every now and then you can see in the paper another beautiful bird died because it ate a mice and ate a mouse and the mouse had some pesticide in it. So that's the reason. But the night skies are a big reason because we've thrown them off their patterns and a bunch of them have not been able to adapt. Maybe some have, but not enough. Okay. Just yeah. thought I'd throw it out there. I had a question. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Thanks for the call. 203-333-9422. We'll come back. We've got lots of news to report here on the Lisa Wexler Show. A bunch of local happening stories. Don't miss. You're listening to the Connecticut Press Club award-winning Lisa Wexler Show. Now on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. By the way, I had such fun last night at the Governor's Mansion. We posted a couple of pics online. Take a look. Uh, Become a liker to our Lisa Wexler Show Facebook page or follow me on Instagram. Lisa Wexler Radio is my handle there. And you'll see some of the pictures we posted. Um, Oh, we should have one with Melissa Sheketoff. Where's that? She has it. Melissa, Melissa Sheketoff, you're listening to me right now. I need the picture. It was on your camera of you and me, you and me and Melissa. I want that picture. I want, I want the gals of WICC. Anyway, I saw Melissa Sheketoff there last night with her handsome hubby, which was really fun. And we schmoozed, and I don't know how she got to bed in time to do the show. She's unbelievable. 203-333-9422. But I will say that this was my first time in the governor's mansion, hopefully not the last, but my first. And it was a cocktail party for press. And there were maybe 50 people there, something like that. And it was very warm and welcoming. The governor was there. The lieutenant governor was there. She's coming in tomorrow, by the way, in studio to um, be interviewed on our show and say hi. So she'll pick up the phone for you, uh, Susan Bysowitz. And Governor Lamont was very warm and welcoming, and so was his staff, and they had yummy hors d'oeuvres, and it was a beautiful part of Hartford, uh, which bordered right on West Hartford with these stately, gorgeous homes, and it just reminded you of a bygone time. I've often, I've often reflected that when people lived a shorter lifespan, they built things to last longer. And I'm not really sure why that is. But when we had the great building in the beginning of our industrial age in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we built bridges and subways and office buildings with redundancies and steel beams that will probably last forever. 
or at least a lot longer than the things last today. And when you look at the homes that were built in those days, built of red brick with thick plaster walls and extensive molding trim and elegant stucco and just beautiful details and wrought iron fences and just things that were built to last but also built to look pretty and to be elegant in their own way. And you think that the average lifespan in the 1930s was only 47 years old for an average man. So that they knew that what they were building were things that would outlast them. And here we are with an average lifespan well into our 80s, hopefully 90s and higher. And we built things that are last maybe 10 years if we're lucky. Let's rip out the kitchen. Let's rip out the dining room. Let's rip out the floors. Rip them out, rip them out, rip them out. We're just, we're just in a much more disposable kind of world. And you know what? Our stuff looks it. Our stuff really looks it. The, the stuff that we have built since the original age of building, it looks it. It looks disposable. Don't you agree? 203-333-9422. It's not designed to last, and it doesn't last. I'm Lisa Wexler, 203-333-9422. Listen, speaking of building, fabulous story, interesting story, reported by Heather Hervé of Good Morning Wilton, that a search for a 275-year-old cemetery of enslaved and free black Wiltonians may derail a development plan to build over 100 units at 331 Danbury Road. So until recently, it was thought and planned that a 126-unit apartment building on a piece of land, a triangle piece of land that's wedged between Route 7 and Norwalk River and Metro North Stanbury Branch was going to be built per spec of the developers. But Wilton Historical Society historian Dr. Julie Hughes, whom we interviewed recently, she's pretty fabulous, She found a rediscovery of a cemetery dating back to as early as 1749. And Dr. Yu says, you know what? We're not going to build here yet. No, 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 no. We're going to stop. We're going to do a substantial archaeological search. We're going to see if there are any remains. We're going to see if there are any indications of this burial ground. You know, burial grounds are rather sacred among just about all cultures. And people don't like to disturb burial grounds. And they have their own protections. The agenda for tonight's Wilton Planning and Zoning Commission meeting lists a discussion of a letter sent by the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office to the town planner, notifying him that it was aware that the parcel had been identified as a possible location for a, quote, significant historic property worthy of preservation. State law makes intentionally destroying or removing graves or gravestones or disturbing cemeteries a felony, not a misdemeanor, a felony. You can look it up, Connecticut General Statutes 53A218. And Hughes had been hired by the Historical Society to conduct research into enslaved people in Wilton. She was on on our show to talk about it, how the few black families in Wilton existed and thrived for a while, and then many of them left. But she came upon records of something called Spruce Bank Cemetery, 
including Bob Russell's book about Wilton. And she's not exactly sure where the precise location is, although general accounts point to 331 Danbury Road. She's looking, she's looking at artifacts. She's looking at geological information as to whether or not certain soils are conducive or not to burying people. She's trying to interview documentarians who know about Wilton's history, and she plans to look firsthand at three possible locations. But in the meantime, she says, before you think about putting a, a, a shovel in the ground on this property, hold on a second. We're not going to do it. And in the meantime, the PNZ doesn't like the application anyway. They said the 126-unit multifamily housing complex was, quote, ugly, their words. And they gave what uh, the newspaper deemed at the time a frosty reception. So it's really very interesting. Um, and... Um, I think it's pretty cool that Wilton is doing this deep dive into their own history. And, uh, you know, Connecticut is full of these tiny little cemetery plots dotted just about all over the place. If you go down Route 33 in Westport and you just open your eyes, you'll see these little dotted hills of a few grave markers here and there. For whatever reason, that's the way early Connecticut settlers buried their people. They buried them in little clusters of markers and with a gravestone survive all over the place. So 203-333-9422. But the big news is that in Westport, the train station area of Saugatuck is going to be massively redeveloped. The zoning um, amendment change for the entire Saugatuck district was passed last night by a five-to-one vote with one planning and zoning commissioner, Patricia Zuccaro, walking out early and not voting. There was one dissent and five people, including Paul Leibowitz and led by Danielle Dobin, the chair of the PNZ, went ahead and passed this massive text amendment. Now, I've asked Ms. Dobin to give me the skinny on details, and she said they are writing it now in a digestible, understandable way. As soon as it's posted... I'm going to go on the air and explain it to you. I don't really know what changes were, what modifications were made to the proposal that was passed last night, but I do know that Westport Journal reported that it was passed. And this is going to mean the destruction of Morton's parking lot, where the building, where, where the restaurant Tootie's is, is going to be gone. The, quote, last boatyard in the area apparently is going to disappear as well. Um, where the Minuteman Cleaners building is, is going to be gone, that parking lot area. So a lot of spaces that are, that allow in a lot of sunlight, frankly, that give the place sort of that in-between feel of an old-fashioned train station with a little commercial development and some restaurants, it's going to be gone. And it won't only be the particular properties owned by the developer that will be affected, but it will be, generally speaking, property owners within that zone that will be affected as well. So again, I don't know the details. I don't know what height requirements were put into effect, what setback requirements, what if any public spaces were reclaimed, what if any public parks will be created. I really don't know. But when I know, I will let you know. And I just want to let you know, if you were paying attention to this, that this passed. Now, will it be appealed? I'm not sure. I don't know who the constituency is who may appeal it. There is still an appeal 
for funds going on to try and get a lawyer to help represent the people of Hiawatha who are walking distance from this new area in Saugatuck. They're walking distance from this area in Saugatuck, and they are, they are, they are um, being transformed into a hundreds-plus rental residential development, keeping in mind that these rentals and this massive influx of rentals do not create wealth historically for the American people. They don't. They don't create wealth historically for the tenants. They create wealth historically for the landlords, and not always. Sometimes the landlords go out of business too. Uh, Once they're up, they're up, and um, they do have a lasting impact on a community in terms of the people that are going to live there and utilize town services, et cetera. So um, big news going on, not just in Westport, but elsewhere in our Connecticut towns and communities. And, you know, the overlay of this, don't forget, is that Desegregate Connecticut, led by Sarah Bronin and some other groups, are moving to bust single-family zoning altogether with a lawsuit that is making its way in the courts that attacks the town of Woodbridge, Connecticut, asserting that it is patently inequitable and unconstitutional to have single-family zoning. 203-333-9422. Okay, we're going to be right back. And we're going to have a conversation about reclaiming our night skies with a leader in Connecticut, a leader in Connecticut, Leo Smith, from the International Dark Sky Association. There is a Connecticut chapter. If this is something that you're interested in, we're going to be chatting with Leo Smith in just a moment. We'll take your questions and comments for Leo at 203-333-9422. This is the Lisa Wexler Show. You're listening to WICC AM 600, 107.3 FM. Where Trumbull comes first for news and talk. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Good morning, good morning. Well, joining us right now is Leo Smith, who is going to teach me something I don't know. And I just love guests who do that. Leo Smith is passionate about reclaiming the night skies. He is chair of the International Dark Sky Association Connecticut chapter. He is a strategic leader working to build momentum for dark sky protection across the United States. He's been doing this for a very long time. He's been awake to this issue much longer than I have, and he's really worked with a lot of communities statewide and now nationwide to try and get some momentum towards reclaiming our night skies, which I think, frankly, right now seems to be in the, going in the wrong direction. I see more and more neon, more and more lit than I ever did before. Leo Smith, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show. Thanks so much for coming on today. And thank you, Lisa. So this is a passion of mine. Tell me how and why it became a passion of yours. Well, we lived on a... Uh on a street where there was a turf farm behind us. And back in the 2000, 2001, a developer bought the turf farm and put in very nice houses. But the concern that I had was that I was gonna see a lot of glare. And working with the developer, we ended up putting in light fixtures that were shielded. So they put the light onto the driveways and so forth, but they didn't shine the light into neighboring properties. And that's how basically I got started with the the International Dark Sky Association. So in other words, the technology 
to do this right by our living creatures exists? Not only does it exist, but it's a win-win-win all the way around in that the property that's being lit actually looks nicer. It doesn't cost any more. It's not like shielded fixtures cost 20% more than unshielded fixtures. It's just a matter of thinking, thinking it through so that when you actually do it, you do it right. Now, if you do it right for the birds flying above, what about the fact that about 70% of creatures worldwide are nocturnal? So what about our opossums and our raccoons? Do you recommend a lot of motion detectors? Or in other words, what do we do about that piece? The motion detectors are ideal. There's also uh, some fixtures that you can put out there that will automatically turn off, let's say, at midnight or 10 o'clock. And the nocturnal animals also include fish, for example. Mm. If you have a lighted bridge with light going into the water and you have salmon migration, for example, salmon will stop when they come to that lit area because they feel that their predators will be able to see them. So it actually impedes salmon migration. It goes on and on and on with all of the adverse effects of light pollution. And the wonderful thing about this is that we can do this right spending more money. Yeah, not only not spend any more money, how about all the conserving of money? Do we really need to be wasting? You know what drives me crazy? We're chatting with Leo Smith, International Dark Sky Association. And, and I'm telling you, it makes my blood boil. My husband can't even sit next to me anymore while we're driving a car. I cannot stand when I go down the post road and I see it's 10 o'clock at night and all these buildings are lit for nothing. And all these parking lots are lit for nothing. It's just so ridiculous. The stores aren't open. There's a there's a building on the post road in Norwalk that just went up that's a moving storage place. And the thing is is five stories high and it's brightly lit twenty four seven. Drives me crazy. And I agree with you. It's it's totally waste. It's just a matter of time before we get to the point where maybe there will be some energy conservation requirements that will dictate that buildings have to be unlit. Uh, And you see this in New York City all the time where you have all these floors lit. Lit. The cleaning crew is only going around one floor at a time. (laughs) Do Do you really need to have all those floors lit or could you turn the lights off except for that floor where the cleaning crew is going through? That's right. And certainly with parking lots, for safety, you could easily have motion detectors by all of these lamps. It would be a no-brainer. Absolutely. So that if a person is there or a car is there, you're not impinging upon safety. You're doing the right thing by the public that may stray into a parking lot at night if you're a landlord. But you don't have to keep these bulbs on 24-7. And even as a next step, if we didn't have a requirement to turn them off, there's technology out there where photo cells can be put into these lamps where let's say at 10 o'clock if that's the time when the parking lot becomes vacant and you really wanted to have it on anyhow for whatever reason perceived security or whatever there are photocells out there that can reduce the light output by 50 percent starting at 10 o'clock so that instead of having a this brightly lit place maybe it would be dimmed down Mm -hmm. by 50 percent starting at 10 o'clock at night Yeah, and it makes a very big difference. Let's go to Gloria from Westport who has a question. 
You're chatting with Leo Smith of the International Dark Sky Association, the leader of the Connecticut chapter. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Leo. Good morning. Good morning, Laura. Uh, Leo, um, I have been following this for many, 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 many years, eight, ten years. Somebody, uh, I heard them talking about this. So I've been doing this for many years. And what I do, and I'm going to seek your help afterwards, I use, the, you know, the blue painter's tape? Yes. I put those on the windows, on all the windows, uh, and I close the blinds at night. So if I have to have any lights open, I immediately, as soon as it's dusk, I close all the blinds. What more can I do? This is a question of preventing the light from coming in to your room? It's for the birds, so the birds don't crash in. Yeah, for the birds. Because they do, they crash into our windows. They do. Um, yeah. One consideration would be getting uh, light, sh- light shielded blinds. There are blinds that you can get from Lowe's or Home Depot or a number of other places that are light blocking so that they actually do block the light either way from your place going out or from someplace else like in oh, the right. morning. Don't the regular blinds that I have do the same thing, and with the curtains in front of it, they should block the light? No, they're actually they're specially manufactured where if you go to a place like Lowe's, you can find that a certain blind can come what we'll call normal, or it could be uh, slightly light blocking, or it could be complete light, light blocking, and you can order those accordingly. And when you do put in a light blocking shade, it's very effective in terms of keeping the light out. More so than normal shades or normal blinds? Much more normal, yes, much, much more. I would suggest maybe if you want... Really trying to place everything around the house? Going into Lowe's and and actually just checking it out, you know, talking to the... When you go to the blind department, there's someone there. Ask them to show you the differences between light blocking and regular. Okay. okay. Thank and you. And what about during the day? During the day, there's still light emanating. And I do have, I, put, I have a lot of bird feeders, a lot of bird feeders out there. And uh, in the past, that's why I put the blue painter's tape on all the, on the storm window, because we keep that, uh, the storm door, we keep that open. And on the windows in the front, uh, I know there's a pro, no, some kind of other product that they sell that emanates some kind of a sound or something or a light which will deter them. But do you think the painter's tape uh, in pieces all around all the windows is enough for during the day? Um, During the day, your light from your house is probably not really visible on the outside uh, to any noticeable degree because of the sun. I see. But uh, they have in the past gone. I've heard them, you know, uh, go, you know, hit the window or the strong door. Yeah, they've done it to me twice during my show. Twice during my show, I had birds fly into the window. And I'm really not sure why they're doing that. I don't know. Yeah, during the day. A lot of times, it could be that the birds are seeing a reflection off the glass. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you, Gloria. Leo, I. Thank you, Leo. I yes. was, um, I want, we're chatting with Leo Smith, International Dark Sky Association, 203 333 
One of the things that I've noticed lately is a proliferation of what I perceive to be neon signs. And I spoke with our local uh, planning and zoning chair, and she said they're not technically neon, so that the regulation that prohibits neon, a lot of the commercial developers have gotten around it by putting in other lighting, she says LED and other things, that are just as bright and give us the perception of that neon, but since they're not technically neon, they found a loophole in the regulations to achieve the same impact with their lighting. And obviously, I guess the answer is a lot of towns need to keep up with lighting in order to rewrite their regulations. Where is the International Dark Sky Association on coming forward with proposed regulations? Do you have any? that towns can look at so they don't have to reinvent the wheel that you would recommend? Um, There are places like Pittsburgh, for example, has developed some very good sign regulations. One of the issues with sign regulations is whether or not signs should be required to be turned off when the business is no longer open. And in a lot of cases, signs are left on all night long, even though Hardly anybody might be out there on the road driving by to see Absolutely. the sun. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And that happens a lot with car dealerships, too, where right. they have all these lights on. They want to show off their cars, which is understandable. But do you really need to show them off at 2 o'clock in the morning when the when it's the roads are desolate and there's really, you know, like one or two people driving by an hour? I mean, it's crazy. But so there are ways to consider, let's say, if a town was concerned about uh, signing as far as the, 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 whether it's neon or anything else, they could adopt a regulation that would say that at 30 minutes after or an hour after the business closes, signs must be extinguished. Mm. And is that what they did in Pittsburgh? They didn't require that, but they came up with a, a, a whole lot of like lighting levels. How bright could that sign be, sign brightness? Um, there were a number of uh, one of the nation's leading dark sky um, people, Nancy Clanton from Colorado, was hired by Pittsburgh to come up with their uh, lighting regulations regarding signs. Why do you think some people care about this more than other people, Leo Smith? What do you think? I think it's just a matter of awareness. Most people don't think about it when when you drive do you really think about the fact that when you're driving down the street at night that maybe you don't really need all those street lights? I think about it all the time, but I'm a different kind of person. I'm obsessed with these things. And the thing is, what is amazing is probably 85%, maybe 80% of all the street lights, other than the street lights that are on interstate highways, are totally wasted. They're not needed. They're not. As a matter of fact, in in Connecticut, you know how when you drive down a residential street, you have uh, the the, the typical type of of wiring that that the utility company puts in with the utility poles holding it up, and then they put a street light on to that pole. Mm -hmm. Well, for 15 years, I was on the roadway lighting committee that sets the standards nationally for roadway lighting. And if you do roadway lighting correctly, you need to place these lights at intervals so that you don't have darkness in the middle. And when you do that, you have to really have dedicated poles 
which they do out in the West. They had dedicated poles for streetlights. They don't put them onto the poles that are used for wires. But the utility companies here on the cheap are trying to get by without having to put in those extra poles. So they put them on the utility pole that basically is based on wire weight distribution factors as far as distance from pole to pole. And even then, they skip a pole. They have one pole here, if you has a light, then you don't have one on the next one, then you have the one on the next one. It's crazy. And there's never really been any thought given to the fact that maybe we could have a much better lighting system for roadways if we had a master street light plan adopted by each municipality that would give us the reasons why a street light would be needed at an intersection, in front of a fire department, in front of a school crossing, that type of thing. But if we actually had a street light master plan adopted by the communities, you would end up finding that maybe a significant number of street lights would not qualify and would actually maybe you could take them down and save a lot take them of money. down. Yeah, because you know what? Most of the time your car headlight does the job. Most of the time when you're driving. It does. And not, you don't not really only need that, that street but light. You, you you could even on highways in Massachusetts on the Massachusetts Turnpike, um there are embedded reflectors so they don't get popped up when the when the snowfall comes through. There are embedded reflectors and you can use a 3M makes a, a paint for streets that's the retro reflective. You can have a wonderful time driving with no lighting at all, except from your headlight, because you use these reflectors in the road and you use retro reflective painting for your striping between the lanes. There's all kinds of solutions that would actually give you better driving without without having overhead lighting. We're chatting with Leo Smith. Leo, will you stay with us? We're going to be right back. We're learning about alternatives to light pollution on the Lisa Wexler Show today. We'll be right back. Here's what Connecticut is saying about Lisa Wexler. You got chutzpah. You tell it the way it is. Back to the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600. Welcome back. We're continuing a conversation at 203-333-9422 with Leo Smith who is the leader of the Connecticut chapter of the International Dark Sky Association. And, Leo, you were just telling us that there are alternatives to our roadways that are so much cheaper in the long run and on a monthly basis and are just going to be so much more effective in terms of living within our natural environment. You describe different 3M paint coatings, what I used to call cat's eyes in the roads, which are reflectors on our headlights. Uh, there's so much more that, that can be done. And yet it seems to me, Leo, that we're moving in the wrong direction, that when a lot of our local planning and zoning commissions look at individual applications, they're not paying that much attention to lighting. And over time, there isn't that much enforcement of existing lighting regulations. Well, we're getting a little bit better here. Just recently, um, the Connecticut State Building Code was amended to include a light pollution control requirement as part of the electrical code. And that means that it applies, in this case, to all commercial applications. It does not apply to residential, um, but residential only means one and two family dwellings. It doesn't mean, let's say, a 36-unit apartment building. That's commercial. So... If the 
local building inspector and the local uh, build, the zoning enforcement officer uh, are aware of this, maybe a lighting plan would be required at the time that there would be a submission and the lighting plan would include provisions to show that there was compliance with the, in this case, the building code requirement is that all those lights have to be fully shielded. There are some exceptions, Christmas tree lights or decorations for, for swimming pools and things like that are not covered by this, but all of your parking lot lighting is. So that's a substantial uh, step in the right direction, in other words. That's, that's progress. That is progress. So that, that's part, step one. Step two is getting those local officials, the building inspector and the zoning enforcement officer, getting them to take this seriously to the point that they start requiring lighting plans to be submitted when there is a building application put forth. But I also think step three is a survey of all of the existing non-conforming and basically violations of what the lighting code should be. Like, where is that? How are you going to clean up the mess? Well, in this case, there has, it's, it's going to take a long time. The original building code that was part of the energy code came out in 2004. There has been a substantial amount of progress going forth in terms of all architects are aware of this now. A lot of building construction companies are aware of this now to the point that <clears throat> most of them, but not all, but most of them are now compliant. When you see a new building go up, there's a parking lot outside. You see that parking lot with fully shielded street lighting, fully shielded parking lot lighting. That's a major step forward. We still need to address all of those places that just don't do it. And the problem, of course, is that when you go to the building inspector or the zoning enforcement officer and show them that this is what the code says, they have 40 balls in the air already with all that they're doing. And you're basically asking them to sort of drop all those balls and come pay attention to this. And some do, but most don't. Well, that's really a shame. And the reason that we had you on, Leo Smith, is not only to give us this important information, but... Talk to us a little bit about what are some of the damaging aspects of light pollution in our environment. I spoke earlier in the show about birds, and we know that a substantial amount of birds have disappeared from the planet because of disrupted migratory patterns. What, what have you learned? The, the damage, there's, there's, a, there's a book that was put out maybe 20 years ago on the environmental consequences of light pollution. That's the title of the book. And it goes through dozens and dozens and dozens of applications. And you think about things like how many lightning bugs do you see at night compared to what you might have seen when you were in the 1960s if you were That's around true. then? Yeah. Okay. What happened? Okay. A lot of it has to do with light pollution. There are pictures that, that we have that show, for example, a tree where one side of the tree is next to a street light and you have all of the leaves have fallen behind the street light where there's no light, but all the leaves that are next to the light itself are still attached to the tree, let's say in November. 
I'm looking at a tree right now that's next to one, and, and that's true. My maple tree in the front yard. Now, why is that? Why? It's simply a matter of the fact that the light communicates directly with, with the tree, and somehow or other the leaves feel that they should still be there because there's the light. It's not getting dark at night. And, and so what does that do to the lifetime and the health of the tree? Does it throw it off? We don't really know what those consequences are, but they're definitely not positive. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that. That's amazing. And what about the birds? Uh, the Audubon Society in Connecticut is working uh, on a program to turn the lights out. And it's like lights out Connecticut mm-hmm. so that if you have one of those buildings, there's a couple of considerations. One is it's great to turn the lights out all the time, but particularly when you have migration, bird migration, that's when you can have a lot of adverse consequences to birds. There are cases where if you don't turn the lights out, birds will fly around the building and fly around the building until they die of exhaustion. And it's really something that's been in the works for a long time. Some big cities like Chicago, Boston, New York, all have a lights-out program during bird migration season. Lights have to be turned out in all the big buildings. And the bird migration season is what? Typically, what, September, October, and then again, April, May, or March, April, May? Something something like that. That's yeah. right. So, in other words, an incremental approach, and then if people get used to turning the lights off, maybe they'll continue to do so. They'll see energy savings. Maybe they'll look twice about it. I started with No Mo May to help the pollinators, and probably next year I'm going to go to No Mo May in half of June, and instead of mowing our lawn once a week, which we had been in the habit of doing, we're now mowing our lawn every other week. And my husband's really thrilled about the development because he doesn't notice that much difference except in his pocketbook. So he's happy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's nothing bad about conserving and returning to our natural state, really. When you think about the natural state, imagine that you're out in a field at night, full darkness, except you have a full moon with Mm. no clouds. That full moon gives you enough light for you to be able to see rocks, to be able to walk your path at night with no problem. And that is about one hundredth of the brightness of a streetlight. Do you really need to have a lot, lot, lot more than that? Or would 10 times more be be okay? Uh, It's just one of those things that has gone on and on and on. In our town, we have – I'm in Suffield, Connecticut. In our town – we have street lights that are 70 watt, 100 watt, 150 watt, 250 watt. Why? Why? There's no rhyme or reason. It's not like, and that's where the street light master plan comes in. Mm. If a town adopts a street light master plan, then they can do everything in a rational way. Sometimes street lights are put in because Joe comes in and says, I want a street light in front of my house because Ralph has one in front of his. Mm. Yeah. That's and then the, 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 the town engineer says, all right, all right, all right, just to get him out of the office and, and get this done and let him go, go on with his regular work. So there's all kinds of reasons why streetlights are out there, but there's very few rational reasons. Sometimes the darkness presents fear. 
people are afraid of the dark, especially as kids. And sometimes that carries through into the point where you're an adult. It doesn't mean that light actually provides you with security as opposed to it provides you with a feeling of security. Leo Smith, this is, um, it's just marvelous that you're so active in this sphere. I'm so happy that there is somebody like you out there who is fighting the good fight about something. I'm just waking up to it in the last year or two, but I'm going to keep at it with my microphone because education is always the first step. And then you hope that there's a tipping point where there's a sort of a consensus in our communities as we get further along that we need to reverse this. I would encourage people that are interested in this to go to the International Dark Sky Association website. There's a tremendous amount of information. It's at darksky.org. And there you can find tons and tons of resources um, that can help along the way with regards to there's a model lighting ordinance uh, that's out there. It, It really helps. Uh, so if you have an interest in that, consider visiting the website and eventually even maybe considering becoming a member. Thank you so much, Leo Smith, the International Dark Sky Association, darksky.org, for being on our show today. We'll be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show coming up. 